This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites, clark.com and clarkdeals.com. So divided government is where we've ended up yet again. And it's interesting that stock markets here in the United States and many overseas really, really like divided government. And what's happened since the election results showed we were going to continue to have a split in who runs what in Washington, that stocks have gone up a lot and for the immediate future, there will be profit-taking days. That's where the direction's likely to be. Now, I want to explain to you why this is the way things are playing and what it means to you with your wallet. There were a lot of people before the election who were really worried that a cloudy election result would be devastating to their 401ks. And as I've shared with you a couple of times, plus in questions from people, you can't react on a short-term event like that because you don't know how it's going to play out and that money in your 401k should be for money that you're using far off in the future. Particularly the younger you are, you ignore current noise in an economy or in a society. And that advice stays the same. But the big reason that stock markets love divided government is it means there's less likely to be much more government spending, which leads to larger deficits and also leads to higher interest rates. As soon as it became clear that there was going to be a split result, what happened next was interest rates on the most directly impacted rate that economists follow, follow something known as the 10-year treasury, which is kind of like a 10-year CD for rich people and big institutions, the interest rates on those declined. Because once it became clear that we weren't going to have a giant stimulus law come into effect with divided government, it meant that the deficits would not get larger than anticipated and that the government wouldn't have to fund more of a deficit with more borrowing that they would fund with things like the 10-year note. And so the result is that it's easier for stocks to maintain value or grow when the things they compete against in the marketplace, like what interest rates you can earn on savings accounts, pitiful and going to get more pitiful, um, what wealthy people can earn on things like treasuries, or municipal bonds, they're all affected by a divided government result. So that's why the stock market, uh, even with some of the uncertainty we've had, seems stable. 
Now, the economy is going to get a small booster shot from a stimulus law that now looks very, very likely to be passed later in November or at the latest, I would say, the first week of December. Now, this is the kind of thing that I'm crazy to go out on a limb about because I don't control anything that the politicians do. It's just my reading of the tea leaves says that we will have a smaller rather than larger stimulus that will be passed. And it is a, a thing that is just the where we are and on a, I think tomorrow maybe. I want to talk about what my prognosis is for the overall economy for the foreseeable future and then longer term. Because I think that the economy was the number three issue on people's minds when they voted. And in many people's minds, it is the number one issue. And I want to give you a sense about where I see us going from here. It's time for your questions that you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate. Kim, what you got? All right. This first one's from Sarah in Virginia. Sarah says, I've been contributing to a traditional IRA for 19 years. I'm turning 40 next week. I'm a cosmetologist. My husband's in the military and we have three boys. I don't plan on working five days a week forever. I think as we age, we'll probably live off my husband's retirement, which will be half of his base pay. And I'll probably end up working two to three days a week max. This should put us in a lower tax bracket by the time we're ready to draw on the IRA, which is why I think we should continue contributing to the traditional instead of a Roth. Are we the one exception to the rule or am I being delusional? You are not being delusional because as you may have heard me say that with the budget deficits we've accumulated and that we're still doing today with the federal budget that and an aging population tax rates ultimately are going to rise, uh, almost certainly, because the American people won't accept having Social Security take a 25% haircut, which is what would have to happen if we don't come up with more money. So for people who expect their incomes to be roughly similar or close to in retirement what they are now, or even later in working life, um, then it's better to do a Roth version of an IRA or a 401k. In a circumstance like yours where your path is pretty well mapped out, you know you're going to have lower income in the future, likely even with overall higher tax rates, you'll still be at a lower rate. Doing a traditional is a good decision. And if your spouse is not participating in the military version of the TSP, you got to get that going because the TSP is the best retirement plan anywhere. And I appreciate so much your family's sacrifice serving us in the U.S. military. Joel? Clark Bryan in Florida says, we've been following your advice regarding our upcoming cruise. First, let me say that we're not going to go regardless of what happens in the next few months. And I've been waiting for the cruise line to cancel the cruise. The cruise is in late January of next year. My question is, we're coming up on the final payment date, and I want to know, should we cancel ourselves before this date? It's November 17th. 
Or should we wait and hope that the CDC does the right thing and extends the no-sale order? The CDC looks like they are not going to extend the no-sale order, but the procedures they put in place that affect so heavily the Carnival-branded ships, Royal Caribbean and NCL, and all the other brands that all three of these own, which account for almost all cruises sailing from U.S. ports, they have to go through such an extensive protocol First, doing essentially test sailings with employees only. The employees have to go through one month of quarantine. And the cruise lines have all given up on their sailings they originally had hoped to do for the Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's holiday period. I'd say the smart money is that that cruise you have booked for early next year isn't going to happen. I can't guarantee that. So this is a tough call because if you don't make your final payment, which is going to be the largest payment likely, then other money you've paid in may in fact be at risk. But if you pay in and the cruise does go, then what in the world do you do and what happens with your money? In addition, if you do pay and your cruise is canceled, generally the cruise lines are very reluctant to give the money back And they hold on to it, and so it becomes like a gift certificate for a future cruise. This is one without a perfect answer. Kim? Deborah in Georgia says, my hubs and I love and appreciate you very much, Clark, and thank you for your recent advice on wills. But please tell me, if I make a will online, then I print it out, what do I do then? Do I need to get it notarized or filed within the court system? Or is it just that I let my survivors know my wishes? What a wonderful question. So wills and the requirements for how you handle them are different in all 50 states. And so if you use a software package to do a will, like the most popular of all is Willmaker, it will then take you through the process when you complete the will, what you must do to make it a true valid will in your state of residence. So uh, it'll go through what witnesses are required and all the rest. If there is any notarization required, it'll tell you that. In addition, it is very unlikely, I'm not aware of anywhere in the country, that you have to file a will with government ahead of somebody's actual passing. I've never heard of that. So the core and key, though, is that when you've completed the will, that the proper signing and witnessing that the will software should guide you through is done exactly as required in your state. And then you've got a true, valid, legal will. Remember, though, that if your personal situation is complex, either a lot of money, you have your own businesses, you have blended families, that's when you especially want to look at having a lawyer who specializes in wills do your will for you and pay that money. Joel? Clark Edward in Virginia says, I still have not received a tax refund from my 2019 federal return that I filed electronically, not by mail. I checked the IRS where's my refund tool and it says that my refund is still being processed And there is no date when the refund will be available. It's hard to believe that an electronically filed return is taking until uh, October and November to be processed. Do you think everything's okay? 
I'm in the same situation, and there are millions of others that are in the same situation. The IRS systems are basically haywire as a result of coronavirus. IRS workers working remotely, IRS workers who became sick, um, IRS workers who've quit. There's a extreme shortage of employees available. I mean, there was a time we were talking about earlier this year where the IRS had 12 million unopened pieces of mail. Uh, no report recently how many unopened pieces of mail still remain. I filed electronically just as you did. Uh, no refund at all. And this is true for many of us is that if you really need that refund, it's going to be a wait. And I can't even tell you how much longer we have to wait. Kim? David in Virginia says, I have a spare $1,000. What's the best short-term and or long-term investment I can make? Ooh, what a puzzle. So if it's short-term, you can't invest. Short-term, which I define as periods of time up to five years, basically you are a saver at that moment because you can't afford to lose the money you've put in and anything that involves investing, you have too much risk in the shorter term of losing some of that money. So just a simple savings account or CD with an online bank or credit union is what I would do. Um, the thing for long term is if you're not funding a Roth IRA, pop that thousand in a Roth IRA, put it in a targeted retirement fund for the year closest to when you think you're going to retire, and just set it and forget it as tax-free growth and tax-free spending will be your friend. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Derek is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Derek, you are a Robinhood app user. And you're getting a little nervous with all the oops they've had at Robin Hood lately. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I'm very disappointed because when Robin Hood started, I was so excited and remained excited because they were a disruptive force in the brokerage industry. And they brought about a lot of great change and uh, in particular, taking their free trading model that others said, oh, that'll never work. And now you got all the discounters offering their versions of free trading as well. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking of with Robinhood? Are you feeling like you want to bolt because of the customer no service issues they've had? Yeah, I mean, I do have a, a sizable uh, amount of money in there. And uh, just with everything going on, uh, I just would feel more comfortable. I, I mean, I love the ease of it. I love the fractional shares. I love the scheduled daily investment stuff. Um, I just am more afraid of losing all the money. Well, what yeah, you could do, uh, let me give you a suggestion. See, I would, if you've got big money in there, I would get it out of there. And I would go mm -hmm. to one of the brokerages that offers a real clear uh, guarantee that even if your account gets hacked, 
that they're there for you. The one that has mm-hmm. been the most out front with that has been Charles Schwab and mm-hmm. also offers free trading. But there are certain features of Robinhood that I know Robinhood customers really, really like. So what you could do is you could move a lot of your position to someone like Schwab where you know you're going to have them standing behind you where Robinhood did not stand behind its customers whose accounts got hacked. Um, mm-hmm. And then only at Robinhood have a smaller amount of money for the things that you really like to do that are so easy and convenient for you to do. Mm-hmm. So Is not necessarily kick them completely to the curb, but lower the voltage of risk by getting a lot of your money transferred out. Yeah. When I go to Schwab, is there a certain account that I should be looking for? It's called a Schwab one there. And Schwab is um, a more, even though they're very low cost, they're more traditional. You're not going to find the razzmatazz that you have with the app from Robinhood. So you'll feel like um, it's dodgy, but they're very good at what they do. And you're not going to have worries about being feed to death at Schwab. And you'll have the guarantee that they stand behind you if your account gets hacked, which is Robinhood's big Achilles heel right now. So I would say rather than go all in with someone else, keep enough money at Robinhood so you can do the fun things there, but preserve most of your money elsewhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great to be here with you on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you have. And in the aftermath of an election, and anyone who's listened to me over the 30 plus years that I've been doing this show, you'll hear me a couple days after an election talk about things that voters decided that have nothing to do with candidates, because so often they set a direction that the country is headed that may not really be being talked about. And I want to give you some examples of citizen votes around the country that do set what I believe to be clear directions in voter sentiment anywhere. And I want to start with a vote in Florida that voters overwhelmingly adopted a $15 minimum wage in the state. This was something that industry in Florida was vehemently opposed to. And just as has happened in every other state that has adopted a $15 minimum wage, the votes have been overwhelming in legislatures, or in this case in Florida, by voters. The idea of the minimum wage, the national minimum wage is still seven-something an hour. Don't remember what number it is. Anyway, um, it's become irrelevant because there's been so much inflation over the years since the $7 
whatever, 735, 20, whatever it is. Anyway, that has become just almost not a factor. And states, in the absence of the ability of Washington to agree on things, states, either through their elected representatives or the voters directly, have been pushing the minimum wage up. And Florida is doing it by what's known as Amendment 2, and it will go in steps, where it will go up a couple of bucks a year till it hits 15 mid this decade. And so this has been something, it hadn't mattered if a state was a red state, a blue state, whatever. When the idea of raising the minimum wage has come up, it has been absolutely clear that at the state level, people want the minimum wage raised. And 15 seems to be the number that people have settled around. I remember years ago when the whatever that campaign was for $15 an hour, I was like, what? And it actually resonated with the public, and it's where we are. Another area where voters voted in a number of states is on legalization of drugs, specifically marijuana. Four more states have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes, so now a total of 15 that account for uh, well past a majority of the nation's population. And a, a huge number of states, I don't remember, it's most states now, allow marijuana for medical use. I'm trying to remember the number for that that have allowed it for medical. I think I have that here. I've got so many things I've been reading. So this thing of allowing people to um, to use marijuana for medicinal purposes, here it is, now 36 of the nation's 50 states. So the country's pretty much spoken on that. And then Oregon did something really over the top. Oregon made all drugs uh, decriminalized. And I know for many people, and when I've talked about, gosh, I've been uh, saying this for uh, decades that I believe that drugs should be legalized. Doesn't mean that they're good to take. They're terrible. They can destroy people's health, their lives. They can lose their lives, as we've seen with the uh, overdoses from opiates that have been such a brutal cost to so many people and families, ripping families apart from those overdoses. Uh, the reality is prohibition has not worked and did not work. In fact, we were watching a rerun of a TV show from 1971, and the episode was all about the war on drugs. And so it's been going on for most of our lives, you know, and it just isn't getting anywhere. But we'll see if what Oregon is trying to do is an effective thing. In California, the state had passed a law through its legislative body that uh, made gig workers employees of the firm that they were doing gig work for. 
um, Uber, Lyft, any of the food delivery services, anything like that. And the voters of California in an initiative decided that was junk. And now gig workers again in California, as they are elsewhere in the country, will be independent contractors and will not be considered to be employees. And, you know, my belief on that is we need a third category for people who work for an organization beyond employee or independent contractor, because there are a lot of things that are in, in a kind of fuzzy middle, and we still haven't come up with a procedure for that. The last thing I wanted to mention is California, in an era that it actually has the possibility for traction in Washington, the citizens voted in a digital privacy protection law. And the digital companies are so unpopular with both political parties right now that I think this is one that could have real national traction. The California ballot measure, it's called the California Privacy Rights Act, does much to make our privacy much more like Europe has had for years with the right to be forgotten. With all but small businesses that have websites, you will have the right to opt out of having any of your information shared. So you will have this universal right with most uh, companies you might digitally interact with, either with e-commerce or anything else you do online, you will have the right to tell them to stay out of your life and destroy your data. It's something simple, important, and we should have this everywhere in America. It's time for your questions. You posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternating. And Joel, is it your turn? That's right. And oh, man, I got it right. Way to go, man. <laughs> and the, uh, Regis in New Hampshire has a question. Says, I want to share some good news of sorts in these days where many credit card companies are cutting account holders' credit limits. It seems that the opposite is happening to me and several people I know. Last week, I got a letter from my credit card issuer, and I was surprised when the letter said they were doubling my credit limit to 7000 I had to do a double take. My credit union also raised my limit without asking for this as well. When I mentioned um, this to a group of friends, several chimed in that they had also received uh, increases at the same time. So is this occurring on a widespread basis, and what's the reason behind it? So there was a shift that happened uh, probably starting in September where credit card companies continued, even with what it has been uh, near historically high unemployment rates through this year, they noticed that they were having no significant increase at all in what are known as charge-offs, credit card debt that went into default. So the credit card companies are using their own versions of deep data to decide who of their customers they're going to cut limits on and who of their customers they're actually going to increase limits on. And then the third category, which I shared just a week or two ago, that a number of credit card companies are out soliciting customers again after not doing so for basically six months. And so the banks are feeling more comfortable with 
their credit levels of risk and are trying to slice and dice down to each individual and as best they can parse that individual's situation to determine whether to leave them alone, cut their limit, close their account, or at the other end, increase their available credit limit. Kim? Adam in Georgia says, my wife and I are in our late 30s and we're looking to buy our first home. We're nervous about making a poor decision. Can you recommend any home buyer classes or seminars that might help us get better informed with all the ins and outs? There's a woman in Chicago who I think does the best job of any real estate expert for first-time home buyers. Her name is Elise Glink, and she's written a wonderful guidebook for first-time home buyers. Has a website that I think is Think Glink, G L I N K, dot com. Uh, I think that's right, and and I that was right. Think Glink, G L I N K dot com. And this book that she has, the Think Link book, the website, the various books she's written, do a beautifully micro-targeted step-by-step guide to knowing how to buy that first home and knowing the things you need to get in place in order to buy that home. Joel? Clark Matthew in Georgia says, why do you always promote 529 plans over a Coverdell ESA when 529s are solely for tuition and Coverdell covers tuition fees and supplies? It's a very valid question. Congress has never given the Coverdells enough room to breathe. And people have, I find, unless they're sophisticated investors, they have more trouble with setting up a Coverdell and knowing the proper and best ways to fund it and where to go get one. The 529 plans are like the easy button and it's so simple for me to be able to explain how to pick one, which ones are the best and what your money should be invested in. So the Coverdells are a really great tool for people who are more sophisticated with investing. But for most people, the 529s are the best go-to, in my opinion. Kim? Rosa in Oregon says, I'm retired. I owe $15,000 on credit cards. I asked a lender for a loan to try to consolidate them, but they refused because I rent and I don't own anything. What do you suggest I do about these cards? I haven't used them for three years, but I would love to get them paid off. Well, you are so sweet to want to try to tackle these cards. And what I recommend for you to do that is I want you to go make an appointment at an affiliate of the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, nfcc.org, and see if they can negotiate with the credit card companies a payment plan that will see you to a trend line to get this 15 grand off your back. And best to you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mike is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Mike, I love how you love to save money. And it sounds like your wife is the same way, that you're both great at saving money. Is that right? Oh, that is right, Clark. Uh, I really have to say I appreciate all the advice and tips that we've probably picked up from your show over the years that have put us in the position that we're in. Well, that is wonderful. And how have you been saving all this money? Like, where are you putting? Both of us have Roth IRAs um, with one of the low-cost companies. And um, we both contribute the maximum to that. And then I contribute to a 457 plan through my state. um, And I also max that out. No, you're Uh, not. So you're saving a zillion dollars every year. Well, I wish it was a zillion. It's a little short of that. Um, <laughs> but it's still great. <laughs> but we're, we're in the position now that we're trying to decide what the next avenue is. Um, my wife is primarily self-employed. Her, her income does fluctuate a fair amount from year to year. Um, and we've looked at either doing either a SEP or a solo 401k for her. Um, what I didn't know is if there's any other disqualifiers because she also has a small part-time job where she is a W-2 employee um, and actually also has the ability to contribute to a 457 with that. However, it's a, not a lot of income per year, so it's a, a relatively small amount. And I was just looking for a resource of where I could find what retirement accounts uh, basically disqualify different retirement accounts. Yeah, so in her case... She's able to both contribute to the account that's available to her as a W-2 employee and do the self-employed pension, the SEP. The SEP would be a good choice for her because it allows you to parallel track where you're able to contribute of her self-employment income. You're able to contribute roughly a quarter of what she nets from the self-employed income. And that would be like a pre-tax fund where it reduces your current income and then later on it would be taxed. Kind of like the difference between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA where the Mm -hmm. Roth, it's after-tax money, the traditional is before. The SEP would be uh, before-tax income that she's able to defer. The beauty of the SEP and why it's what I would recommend in her situation is the SEP is so flexible. In a year she can afford to, she can put in the max that she's allowed to under the SEP formula. And in a year that money's tight, she can put nothing in it. And you're able to put that money in looking back. So you could be preparing your taxes for a year the following April and say, hey, you know what? Let's put some money in last year's SEP and you're able to do that. So it provides 
extreme flexibility and much larger amounts of money than someone can normally put in an IRA. But a SEP essentially immediately becomes type of IRA. And you can do a SEP with any of the low-cost companies. So anybody you, uh, like you mentioned, you have your Roth IRAs with one of the low-cost companies, she could open her SEP with the same low-cost company and have money there in the SEP, have money in the Roth. And the beauty of having money in both pre-tax and after-tax accounts when you move into retirement is it gives you maximum flexibility on what to draw your funds from that is most tax favorable each year. And keep saving like maniacs like you do, Mike, because it makes a huge difference in the long haul. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.